and welcome to The Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. This week, we're discussing with Cameron Murray the state of influence between property developers and the state government, well, governing bodies in Queensland. So uh, it's a very interesting report, this one. I I want you to uh, stick with it. There's some heavy detail, but really, this is the sort of investigative reporting we love here on The Renegade Economist. I woke up this morning to the good news that Cameron Murray, who appeared on our show earlier this year called Property Rights for All, it was the first show for 2015, and the good news was that his report I've been hearing whispers about has made it onto The Guardian. It sounds like it's on the Australian Financial Review as well, and uh, the report's name is Clean Money in a Dirty System, Relationship Networks and Land Rezoning in Queensland. And when uh, we discussed in early January, Cameron, the interrelationship between these exclusive networking clubs and property development, you said there was some some excitement in the pipe work and you'd come to some interesting conclusions, but now the cat is out of the bag. Welcome back to the show. Give us the headline stats on uh, just how dirty a system it is when it comes to land rezoning in Queensland. Well, thanks for having me back, Carl. What's the headline stats? Well, just keep in mind that all I could look at was one small sample of land rezoning decisions. And what I found is that these decisions increased the the value of the land inside the rezoned areas by $710 million. Of that amount, 410 went to what we classified as connected landowners. They're landowners who are well-connected in the industry to the ULDA, which is the government body that ultimately made the rezoning decision. They're well-connected to each other. And, uh, yeah, they, they were essentially handed $410 million by the state government as a result of their political connections. And that's just that's just a small sample of the land rezoning decisions that happen every year in Queensland and, and around the country. So you're talking about membership of things like the Property Council of Queensland, I imagine the Queensland Racing Club, things like that. Is that what you're talking about? They're the sort of networking opportunities where uh, they, they uh, grease the wheels of insider dealings. Correct, correct. So we use, uh, we use landowners who employ lobbyists. Uh, we make connections through industry associations with the Property Council of Australia and the Urban Development Institute, the two main lobby groups. Uh, we have relationships to former politicians who have worked in the same company. We have relationships to the board of the, the ULDA, the state body, uh, from former employers. And we have corporate relations, so uh, relations through directors uh, and majority shareholders of these landowners to everybody else in that network that we end up mapping. And we end up with... Uh, from that 13,000 entities of individuals and companies in our network connected by 272,000 relationships that we can map. And then we use that uh, to see if we can predict where the boundaries of these rezoned areas fall. So you had these thousands of relationships. What sort of modelling did you perform and and how did you join the dots between uh, relationships and windfall gains? Yeah, so the trick to doing this sort of thing is establishing a control group. 
And one of my previous ideas was to look at the uh, winning tenders for government contracts and see if I can predict who wins government contracts based on the relationship networks of the companies and the directors involved. The problem there is you need a counterfactual of a company that, that did submit for the tender and you need to also look up all of their relationship networks. Now, in rezoning, I'd interviewed various people uh, in the industry, lawyers and former bureaucrats and community groups, and they they basically gave me the idea that the boundary of rezoning areas is a political decision. And what happens if you know a friend of a politician happens to own land on the outside of a proposed rezoning area, they'll amend the area to make sure that they fall inside it. And so using that idea, I thought, well, my control group can be landowners who are immediately outside those rezoned areas with comparable size and shape, uh, undeveloped lots. And what that means is that my control group is just as good at predicting which way the uh, the city will expand and which, you know, will it go west up this valley or north towards the coast or whatever it might be. Their, their prediction of that is the same, but the difference being they happen to fall on the wrong side of the boundary. So we can cleanly control, well, these landowners predicted where the growth would happen, but for some reason they fell on the wrong side of the boundary. And we look at their networks as well and and find that essentially any connection to politics increases your chances of the, the rezoned area going around your land so that you fall into it by, by 20%. And the more connected you are in that network, uh, you can get an, an additional 25% gain by becoming more connected. The other interesting thing is that you can get these gains from hiring a lobbyist as well. Our data shows that buying a lobbyist is a substitute for being well-connected yourself. So if you're not well-connected, if you're kind of on the fringes, you want to hire a lobbyist who's really well-connected to really guarantee that you'll get get the favourable decision. So it's really a game about relationships and getting into these cliques and, and inside groups who exchange favours over time and, and you know look out for each other's interests. So this level of prediction went right down to which side of the street the rezoning came to. Now, how did you get that precise a predictor in your modelling? So, so what we do is... We don't exactly predict which street the boundary will fall on. What we do is predict the probability of you falling inside or outside when you are a neighbouring property immediately outside the boundary. So you might be next door and the boundary runs between your site and the one next door. So you're in our control group. There's no economic reason why you're not included in the rezoning. I mean, if you want to argue that rezoning is efficient and beneficial and you know, it's constraining growth, something I, I don't believe is true. But if you wanted to argue that, then you should also argue then why did we restrict it to these particular areas and not simply expand it? Which means the decision of where that boundary is is crucially important. So if I select all the owners, you know, on the west side of the road where the boundary falls and all the owners on the right side um, who, who were rezoned, um, the question is, well, why is, the, why is the boundary on that road and what's wrong with the western side owners compared to the eastern side owners? So I end up with two groups, essentially, in the data. The, the non-rezoned groups, who could have easily been rezoned because they're either adjacent or across the road, and the rezoned groups. And then I compare those, those groups and the characteristics of their relationships and their donor, donation activity and whether they're members of industry groups and that sort of thing. 
Well, it sounds like some very impressive detective work and uh, reading through your report, uh, Clean Money in a Dirty System, Relationship Networks and Land Rezoning in Queensland, I see that uh, there's some disparaging remarks about grandmas who own land on the outskirts of town and uh, from what you've written the the public cost of choosing to rezone land owned by insiders uh, has resulted in suboptimal infrastructure investments councils were planning to build in a certain area and then all of a sudden uh, uh, rezoning happens where their buddies are yeah, that's that's exactly correct. I actually heard the, the grandma comment a number of times uh, from different people. They said to me, well, wouldn't you want to rezone developers? After all, they're the people who are going to build new buildings. You don't want to rezone grandma who will be sitting around in her, her old house, you know, for the next 10 or 15 years. And uh, and it's, it's kind of uh, a good illustration of this, uh, this uh, myth that, I guess that is carried around and in the industry and in the bureaucracy that to get development you must do developers favors because there's nothing stopping a rezone developer simply selling that land to the next person and this happened quite a lot one developer would get the rezoning make their money and sell it on to the next developer who would actually build it so they're essentially in the market for favors they don't actually you know they prefer not to actually have to build things they prefer to do the do it the easy way and simply own land, get the political decision, and make the money from that. And this is where, as renegade economists, we really focus on the importance of defining between property development and land speculation. And what you have identified here is the intricacies of how land banking and this land speculation process plays out. And uh, I'm concerned that uh, within the corridors of power, it's okay for these well-connected insiders to receive the golden pen tick and then uh, enjoy the windfall gains but for the rest of society, they're not uh, really uh, privileged to enjoy such easy gains. No, it's, it's, uh, it's a kind of uh, a sad indicator of the state of our political class, I guess, that this type of dealing is, um, is condoned as acceptable, normal, practical behaviour. I actually put it to various people when I speak to them about this, even if you preferred not to rezone grandma's land, but you did want to rezone the developers because they'll do the building, why not simply charge them for those additional rights? Why did you have to give it to them for free? There's really no answer to that. There's a lot of confusion. Oh, but, you know, they've got to make money or they won't do it. Okay, so if they go broke, they'll have to sell their land to someone else who will do it. It's like regulatory capture on such a broad scale that the bureaucrats and the politicians feel the need now to look after their mates in the industry uh, and there's this mythology built up that nothing will be built unless that happens. And it's simply not true and there's no good economic argument for it, but that's the situation we find ourselves in and that's, I guess, where the challenge is to expose this is, is to break down these these myths and show show them that, yeah, you know, there are places that that charge for additional rights or there are examples of betterment taxes and that you can you can have additional land taxes and you can you can also create development by providing landowners incentives 
to develop more quickly, not to delay and to speculate. Uh, so that's that's where we are at this stage, and I'm hoping with this research I can kind of start that debate, rattle some cages, and, and get some reactions. We'll see. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist. This week we're discussing a top-notch report by Cameron Murray. You heard him at early in 2015. Uh, he and his co-author Paul Frittiers have written up Clean Money in a Dirty System, Relationship Networks and Land Rezoning in Queensland. And uh, it's it, your report talks about how 44 of Queensland's top 100 wealthiest families made their money in property and construction. You then go through how uh, the Queensland um, economic history of, of corruption is uh, has been around for a long time and, uh, and many of that goes back to long periods of one-party rule. How do you feel as a Queenslander having seen the Tony Fitzgerald inquiry which um, pulled apart the corruption in the police force and hear him make some of the quotes you, you put forward in your report? Look, I would love some radical change to happen and uh, and speaking to some people this morning, the question came up, how bad do things have to be before we get change? I don't believe that people change things, that, that change doesn't happen until there's a crisis and this is not quite a crisis yet, unfortunately. I do think there are things that can be done in practice. There are technical changes to policies and processes that 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 could essentially crush this particular, you know, planning and rezoning game that goes on. The question is what what crisis is is needed for that to change? Well, people being forced to have two income earners to pay off a mortgage over 40 years, so you'd think that's a crisis. And Tony Fitzgerald in your report talks about how access to government can now be purchased, patronage is dispensed, mates and supporters are appointed, and retired politicians exploit their political connections to obtain success fees for deals between business and government. This takes me into my next um, line here about the history of the Urban Land Development Authority. Give us the background on why that was set up and when. It's, a, it's like any government authority. There's a kind of convoluted history to why it's there. The short answer is that there was political pressure in 2003 and four around housing affordability. We just The Sydney boom had come to Brisbane, I guess, and the government was you know, under pressure to do something. That do something involved rezoning, of course, because they had plenty of mates tell them that that's what's required. And they flagged they flagged this process in a, in a report called, uh, I think it was called the Housing Affordability Report. And then uh, a couple of years after that report, they, they rapidly wrote this act, the Urban Land Development Authority Act, that created this statutory authority that had the power to take planning powers from councils for the state and basically divert all the previous approvals processes from various other state bodies and local councils into that new urban land development authority and they would essentially be the ultimate decision maker of what went what went on within the boundaries of the land that they took control of. That all happened um, at the end of 2007 and they were given the discretion to basically decide on new areas to be rezoned and taken under their their power, and as you could imagine, when you give this authority that sort of power, and when you stack its board with property industry types, 
you're going to get that power used to advantage their mates. And so between 2008 and 2012, a number of areas were taken under control of that authority. Many of them were state land, and the initial intention of the authority was to release, you know, underutilised state land to developers to encourage development in these areas, but it was mostly used to rezone private land. And the intention was you could allow increased density, faster approvals, and recover some of the increase in land value through additional infrastructure charges that would then be used to, you know, um, invest uh, in roads and connect these areas. It seems like uh, there was, in a way, the, the background motivation for this Urban Land Development Authority being established was to centralise power under the guise of efficiency, uh, which was the cover story for the removal of democratic oversight by independent local councillors. You list in your report a number of examples where major, major national developers uh, benefited from this, this new government authority. Yep, that's basically true. Uh, now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far, though, as to say that the councils themselves don't play this game. Uh, I, I'm not under any illusion that this is a state-level game of trading favours. Councils also have their own networks and favoured developers, and when they revise their planning schemes, they are definitely influenced by these groups. I guess... The problem is if these large-scale developers weren't in the right council networks and the changes they, are, they, they wanted were, I guess, so, so radical compared to the local plans, the council-level plans that were in place that the, the only avenue for such rapid major change to what they're allowed to build uh, was through the state. Now, I mean, whether the intention was there, whether, whether at the time the intention was that this authority would be an economically efficient and good thing, maybe maybe that was the intention. I don't I don't pretend that it's a kind of a, uh, a great conspiracy amongst these people. It's just the natural result of being in these groups and thinking that what's good for your mates is good for society as well. Um, so as I said, you know the, the the idea that the mythology in politics is that you have to look after developers because they look after everybody else. But that's of course. Not strictly true. Um, so that's that's the game. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's not a conspiracy, but it certainly strikes you as, as uh, significant that uh, Lend-Lease had, uh, you know, years of battles with the Logan Council to get the Yarra Bilba uh, location rezoned, and then all of a sudden, under the ULDA, what happened? Yeah, and the same happened with Stockland up at Caloundra. The previous uh, uh, previous Emmanuel Group Corporation had owned that site for 16 years and never got anywhere with uh, plans to rezone and then Stockland shows up one day and all of a sudden it's it's flagged as a new town centre um, despite any previous planning considerations at all. So yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Queensland, I guess. <laughs> but it's not just a Queensland issue. It's it's a national issue and even internationally. I was very interested to see that you referenced um, a peer-reviewed uh, literature from uh, Spain that also looked at the political determinants of new land designed for urban development. Uh, what did you learn from reading some of the, these other academic uh, points of analysis? 
Or maybe I should yeah. say, how, how does your report differ from uh, some of the international literature you've read? Like I said earlier, it's very difficult to come up with a clean example of a control group and a, a favoured group and, and to see whether their relationships determine who got favoured and who didn't. The, the Spanish examples are, are quite interesting because they look at a whole uh, uh, electoral period in which a particular government's in office and they have essentially a system of local plans that, that they report that, that outline essentially a square meterage of area that's going to be allowed for urban development, and they can update that amount in their in their period, and they find um, they find that you can predict how much additional development was made by the political party that's in power in that local government area at the time. There's also some Dutch research showing family connections in local councils uh, predict predict corporate success. So, so board members who are related to city councillors their companies go up in value when their family members uh, who are in council get additional power through the amalgamation of council areas. I mean, this favour trading game, I guess it is the great social game. And the, the other point I probably should make is that trading favours like this is not always automatically inefficient or detrimental. It's inef- inefficient and detrimental to others when it when trading a favour within a group comes at a cost to someone who's not in the group. But there's certainly cases where trading favours within a group has a positive externality on those outside the group. And we can think about companies who invent new things and invest in it. To their group, their company, their the people there are doing what's best for themselves by investing in this new machinery or this new production technique. But in doing so, that actually benefits everybody in society who gets to then further use that in their daily lives for other production needs. So the process of trading favours is not automatically bad. What we want to be thinking about is, well, when we can observe this favour trading that does have negative externalities and costs, just like, I guess, when we observe production techniques and burning coal that has externalities on the environment, what can we do and what systems work so that we can stop that costly cooperation and, and get more beneficial cooperation? Uh, and that that is a very difficult question and obviously there's no clean answer, otherwise we wouldn't have so much costly corruption all across the world. <laughs> Well, I just love that line you have in your uh, your opening summary where uh, insiders take advantage of a missing formal market in political favours. That's virtually the crux of your hypothesis, isn't it, that you are uh, quantifying that, that informal market for political favours. Exactly, yeah. No, I mean, this is how markets work, exchanges and so forth, and we have essentially this informal market and that's um, – that's right, and it's very, very valuable, and it's not easy to see see it systematically. It's very easy to look at one developer or one decision and one relationship. Very hard to look at it systematically and show that, yes, systematically this is what's going on. Um, it's not just a kind of a case here or a case there. 
Yes, well, it, it's of such interest because of what's been going on in New South Wales with the Independent Commission Against Corruption findings against uh, basically unravelling the property development industry there where political donations were banned in 2009 after a couple of uh, very saucy murders. Um, those laws haven't spread throughout Australia and uh, I'll be very interested to see if this model you've developed can be expanded into other states. It certainly can, and that's something I'd like to do. It's just very hard to get the information. And and something I, I mentioned briefly in the report is that uh, the most valuable relationships are the ones most likely to be concealed in public records. So we can't actually see those some of those direct politician-developer relationships because they're, they're hidden behind trusts and shelf companies that are hard to trace through. So we... You know, we we probably miss quite a quite a deal of the relationships that go on. Uh, so yeah, getting that information is hard, and I, I would like to try this in other places to really shine a spotlight on this practice. One of the things I always talk about is lobbyocracy and how lobby money, campaign finance donations leads to political favours. You mentioned donations earlier. Was there a strong correlation between rezoning and donations to campaigns? That's actually very interesting. And that's one of the, the more interesting results from this if I, was, uh, if I was a government official looking to change the rules to stop this is that donations aren't really what's driving these results. What's driving them are the relationship networks. You need to think about donations not as in buying favours. You need to think of them as, as signals of credit. So if I have a relationship with you, how do you know if you give me a favour now that I'll follow through with it? Well, what I can do is I can donate to your political party a little bit every year as a signal to you to say, basically, my credit's good, I'm still in the game, look after me, I'll look after you. It's not so much that that donation is, I'll give you a million dollars, you give me a rezoning worth two million dollars. It's just a, it's just a signal to keep these relationships intact and, and to, to maintain the loyalty. So no, they weren't very predictive. They were completely swamped by these relationship indicators. The other thing about donations is that almost everybody in our network who donated donated to both sides of politics. So this is not exclusively a labour game even though at the time Labor was in power, all these developers also donated to the Liberals because, of course, they wanted to maintain relationships with them for, you know, when the time comes, there'll be another system of exchanging favours with the other major party. So uh, these are long-run games of building up these relationship networks to essentially, no matter who's in power, uh, be the winner of these favourable decisions. Look, it's probably worth finishing on a more positive note about what sort of things can be done. What are these sort of options? And I, I do think that by highlighting just how much value of these additional development rights is given away to developers might help state governments think twice about potentially using that as a, as a revenue stream. I'm really hoping that betterment taxes, land value taxes, the state, local auctions of additional development rights, anything like that, uh, could really, uh, base, instead of all this additional value going to these connected developers, it can be used to fund the public goods and, and public services. I mean, that, that would be my hope.
Well, uh, let's hope so, Cameron. I'm pleased you mentioned that because in a way we're, we're leaving the honeypot on the table for anyone to sneak in and grab it. And when those sort of betterment taxes, uh, value capture, land value tax, anything in that sort of frame is put in place, it takes away that honeypot and shares it with the wider community. And that's ultimately uh, what an economic democracy should reflect. And there we have Cameron Murray. Cameron Murray from ckmurray.blogspot.com check out ckmurray.blogspot.com and on Twitter Rumpelstatskin it's been uh, going off online over 100 shares of that Guardian article talking about how for those um, with good connections good lobbyists uh, they have a 44% higher chance of receiving a windfall uh, windfall gains these unearned income so uh, these guys are the leaners hey uh, check out gardening australia from this week you may well just see me and my family i'll check you out this time next week meet carl fitzgerald and reina fay and their three children tara curtis and jamari who live together on a 600-square-metre suburban block in the western suburbs of Melbourne. So, this is your garden. Yeah, welcome to the nursery. So, Thank this you. is where we grow all of our plants. Yeah, what oh. you got? Three CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates. The big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out, to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. Wasting time, 